Welcome to the Prevail Podcast, everyone. This is episode number six. I'm your host, Brock Cannon. In this episode, I was able to chat with FKT badass Jason Hardrath. FKTs also stand for Fastest Known Times, if you're not familiar with that. And this guy, man, respect. Jason's a teacher professionally, an adventure otherwise, and this guy does the craziest shit. You're going to see why in a minute. Jason has done some unbelievable expeditions, solo traverses around mountains. He combines climbing with ultra running and kind of everything in between. This guy's just insane, and you're going to feel his passion come through when you listen to this episode. I think of all the episodes we've had, there's more quotes and quotable lines from Jason than anyone else that we've had. And I'm going to make sure some of those are available that you could actually, you know, post them on your wall. They're that good. So without further ado, super excited to introduce Jason and get into his story and his wisdom and knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Hardrath. Hey everyone, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Super, super stoked. And it's been a long time in the making to finally sit down with Jason Hardrath. Yes, that is his last name. It's the coolest last name on the planet. We're going to get into a little bit more about Jason, all the really cool stuff that he's been doing, insane adventures. Like literally, I can't keep up with this guy. He's doing the coolest stuff. So super pumped to get into that. Some of his training tips, life, the struggle and ultimately what it means to prevail. So Jason, it's been a long time coming, man. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it really has been a while. We've been trying to track each other down. It seems like one or the <laughs> other of us is always traveling, but I guess I guess that's for the better. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it could be worse. We could, we could both be boring people and be stuck in cubicles or whatever. So yeah, man, fantastic. So for those that aren't super familiar with you, and you know, obviously we'll have a little introduction and a written bio on the show, but Tell us just who is Jason in a nutshell. Oh, man. I mean, I guess, you know, I was born to a family that, you know, not super physically active, but did enjoy getting in the outdoors. So I was introduced to that, that it's a normal thing for human beings to spend time out in nature at a pretty young age, um, young enough that that just seemed normal to me. Um, so I was lucky in that sense. Um, grew up uh, ADHD kid, couldn't sit still. So um, learned from a very young age how important moving my body was. And I think that sort of set the precedent for me being a little different than the rest of my family. Um, I come from a pretty sedentary family. Um, you know, they get their, they get their, uh, exercise through work. Um, gotcha. and so that kind of set the stage for me to kind of go a little different direction, got into running at a young age. Um, well, my first passion was skating, but then I broke a wrist and my parents were like, no more of that. And that kind of built the endurance to get into running. Um, and then just followed that path from middle school to high school, making varsity in high school, making it onto a small college team and then pursuing marathons and then Ironmans. And then 2015, I had a big car accident. Um, broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke my shoulder in two places and destroyed the LCL and ACL in my right knee. And that kind of wow. was like a hard reset in life. Um, and that kind of gave me a chance to, for my hyper-focus to kind of go off of 
doing the triathlon and, and that world and gave me a chance to sort of get introduced to the mountains because I couldn't really run anymore. So I started hiking and climbing and yeah, that kind of set the stage for me getting into some of the stuff I'm doing now. And you know, the, I think that not being able to sit still really helped me recover from that, uh, from that accident. And I guess that lands me where I am now chasing these, uh, these FKTs, these fastest known times. Um, well, let, I want to I want to back up a little, Jason, because I think you hit on two points that I, I feel like are very, very relatable to a lot of people in our audience. I think if I think a lot of people more than are willing to admit in the ultra world are very much ADHD, whether they're officially diagnosed as, as such or not. But, you know, we're, I don't know, we're, we're probably closer to the same age. I don't know. I, I think. I'm probably an older man than you, but like generally it doesn't seem like it was as diagnosed when, when we were kids and you just kind of had to live with it. Now there's, you know, dozens and dozens of prescription pills for it. Um, and kids seem to get diagnosed younger and younger, but what was it, what was it like kind of growing up with ADHD and tell us just a little bit more about how being physically active really, I guess, saved you in a way. Well, uh, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned struggle and I would say the hardest part about growing up, cause I, I'm, a, I mean, I was an intelligent kid. I'm a fairly intelligent adult, I think. Um, <laughs> and the toughest part about having that, and I was also like actually diagnosed, you know, back before I like to say before it was cool. Um, yeah. now, nowadays, yeah, you alluded to how many kids, you know, just because they have short attention spans from staring at screens too much, um, that, yeah, now it gets diagnosed a ton when it shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, uh, I had a 37 second attention span when it was tested. I can remember that. But the the tough part, the the real struggle of it was I had sort of this extreme impulsivity where most of the time when a thought crosses your mind, you have some time to toss it around and go, well, what are the pros and cons? Should I do this? As a kid, I had no filter like that. So an impulse would enter my head and I would act on it. Um, I, one of my earliest memories of this that I can remember just distinctly is I was sitting in Sunday school as a kid and I must've been like first grade, maybe kindergarten. And the, the Sunday school teacher's passing out scissors to do a craft project. Well, up until that point in my life, the only thing I'd seen scissors used for was to cut hair. So <laughs> basically the scissors hit my desk. Like there was no, there was no hiding. There was no like, Ooh, I'm going to try to get away with this. It was literally the teacher is setting the scissors on my desk. The moment her <laughs> fingers leave, my hand grabbed the scissors and cut the hair of the girl in front of me. Like, just like that. And like, as I'm cutting the hair, and this is, this is where it gets to the struggle of it, the hard part of growing up with it. As I'm cutting the hair, my brain catches up. It's that split second too late. Yeah. And my yeah. whole childhood was characterized by this. So like, as the hair is falling in front of me, I'm, my mind is telling me, 
the teacher's going to freak out. The teacher's going to tell my parents, I'm going to be in trouble with my parents. This girl's parents are going to be furious. This girl's going to hate me forever. She's going to have to get a new haircut. That's going to like cost her parents. Like my brain is running through all this stuff before anyone's even started yelling at me before anyone's even had a chance to like process what just happened yet. My brain is already beating me up and being like, Oh, that was so dumb. How could you do that? And (laughs) that was basically like my whole childhood was, destroying friendships and you know messing up relationships with people close to me and and you know pissing off family members just doing things where it's like the second after i would act i would know the full comprehensive like reaction of what everyone and like the the consequences and all that but it was a split second too late and that that was a pretty that was a rough chip on my shoulder to sort of like Cause I mean, you can imagine if you've done this, it's one thing to like laugh at it when it happens once, like, Oh, that's what a silly kid thing. But imagine like repeating that for years right. and years and years, like that got like my own negative self-talk sort of got beat into my own head. And so it took, a, it took a while to really work through that. Um, for sure. Yeah. Sorry. I, I don't know if that was how no, long I wanted to spend on that, but that's, yeah. That's- a, a, a hilarious story first of all and I think just illustrates you know kind of what what that feels like so you know that was something you worked through through your entire childhood now as an adult has it has it gotten more manageable how has some of your you know endurance efforts and physical activity kind of aided in that if it has oh absolutely um even even when I was younger I mean the impulsivity was a lot stronger when I was younger. You know, my prefrontal cortex has had a chance to kind of catch up with the rest of my brain now. So those impulsive things aren't as strong as they used to be. They do, they do come up now and then though. Um, but for the most part, that part's dialed down, but the distractibility, the difficulty, like focusing on things like paperwork that seem meaningless that most people can kind of buckle down and get it done. Um, I still compare it like, I feel like a physical sensation of pain when I'm trying to focus on something tedious like paperwork. And I've, I've compared it. Like if I'm trying to sit down and do a long set of paperwork, like give me 10 pages, 20 pages of paperwork to do. The sensation is similar to being to at like mile 70 of a, of a hundred mile run. Like that's the degree of discomfort as I'm trying to like force myself to continue focusing yeah. On, on this paperwork. So that, that part's still pretty difficult as an adult because there's so many things we have to get done as adults or what well, we should yeah. get done. You don't have to do anything. You can always choose to have the consequences of not getting the stuff you should get done done. Right, <laughs> but, correct. <laughs> but yeah, um, that part's still tough. But with both of those, with the impulsivity as a kid and the distractibility, the, the trouble focusing and, and you know definitely still now as an adult, being physically active sort of calms my mind and allows me to like settle in and get at least some amount of time where I can just be still and focus on whatever work I want to do, uh, whatever creative project I have. I mean, still like the paperwork stuff where it's just seems so meaningless that, that I still struggle with. And I think everybody struggles with it to a degree. Um, but yeah, I'd say the degree I've been aware throughout my life of how important it is to get regular movement with my body. I think my connection to that started younger because of the ADHD 
experience, just being very aware that, oh, wow, like, I think better, I get through work better um, if I've moved, if I move regularly. Tell us, um, tell us really quickly what, what you do professionally, you know, you're talking about paperwork. I hope you don't have too much of it, but maybe you do. So tell us about your professional life and then I want to get into your adventures. Well, back when I was in school, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. Um, but then I read the description. It said, sit at a desk for 14 hours a day and do lots of paperwork. (laughs) I'm like, that's not going to work. Um, and luckily I'd realized one of the things one of the, some of the memories I could recall from my youngest age as well was me just having this desire to help. Like one of my earliest memories as well from school is this kid who was scared of catching a football. So he couldn't play catch with us at recess. And after school one day, I just like hung out with him. I was like, well, my mom's late anyway. She's always late. So let's go learn. Let's go help you learn to catch. And he was like scared. He's like, no, dude, no, no, no. I'm like, no, man, we're going to figure this out. And just like teach him the ball is your friend, don't be afraid. And just like throwing it back and forth and like starting really small and throwing it super soft. And then eventually like backing up and backing up and backing up. And then pretty soon we were playing full on catch with the football. And I guess my mom had like pulled up and just watched it sort of unfold. Mm. She has this memory of me from a young age too. And, you know, when I brought up, you know, maybe I want to become a teacher. um, She's like, yeah, yeah, that would definitely be a good fit for you. Um. And so, yeah, I'm a teacher now, and I chose to, um, against the common um, advice of those around me, I chose to only get my certification in physical education and health, um, because that's where my passion is, and I never wanted to be that teacher that wasn't passionate about what I'm passing on to young people. I always, one of the funny things I say to people is that teaching is a giant cover up to meet and inspire young people. Um, and, and that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, I want to be in a room where I'm supposed to talk about the things I define my life by. Um, and that's really important to me to be authentic. I've told people like, if I ever become that overweight person, that's like sitting on the golf cart and yelling at kids to run faster, it's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll quit my career and I'll teach yeah. myself something different before I ever let that happen. Um, <laughs> to me, that's like a matter of integrity. Yeah. Um, if I don't have the passion for it, I shouldn't be ruining kids' lives. Because <laughs> we all can remember yeah. the good teachers we had and how that affected us. And we can all remember the terrible teacher we had and how that affected us. Um, and so I try to be the former and not the latter. <laughs> Well, that's so, that's so amazing, man. And I mean, you're right. You nail it on the head. Like we all can think back of the teachers that really made a strong impact on us. And, and it's sad because like, I think for most of us, we can count the teachers that really were impactful on one hand or less. Like it's not that many. And I, I can only imagine you're a phenomenal teacher. You're definitely a guy that's walking the walk. And I think your passion's probably coming through. So that's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I think I do well with teaching as a craft, teaching as an art, like the experience with the students. I think I do very well at that. But to tie back into what we were saying earlier, like all the time, I'm dropping professional responsibilities like, oops, I forgot to check that email and I missed a really important meeting and I'm supposed to be in trouble for that. But the nice part is I have a principal that's really understanding and sort of understands how I work. And so it's a really good work environment for me where she's like, yeah, I know in the classroom you're crushing it and that's what matters. So I'll I'll, uh, 
I'll, I'll just give you a soft slap on the wrist when you make one of these silly mistakes. Just try to do better at it. I'm like, okay, I'll try. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great um, leadership principle to realize is that we all have things that are not our strengths and we shouldn't focus on that as much. We should just focus on where we are crushing it. So yeah, man, that's, that's fantastic. So let's get into some of your adventures, some of these FKTs. Um, you know, we had Ashley on recently that talked a lot about FKTs and just kind of defining what those were. But tell us just, I don't know, like maybe a little bit of your highlight reel in terms of like what you've done for races and or these unsupported efforts and just kind of give us a list here and then we'll get into some specifics. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess racing wise, um, it's been a while since I did it. It's been a long while, but I really enjoyed, uh, I, I've done the North Face 50 down there in San Francisco. That was a really enjoyable race. Um, it's That one's been a while ago. Um, I did one recently, the uh, old Cascadia 100 miler and uh, a 24 hour run called uh, Bristow, Bristow 24 hour run. And those kind of were the last races I did. Um, well, not the North Face, but the other ones uh, were the kind of the last races I did that were sort of the fitness stepping stones. And then I met uh, a buddy of mine, Winston Mueller, um, and he's actually the one that some a couple of my first uh, FKTs were done with. Um, and we just kind of one of one of them we submitted. We we weren't even aware of what FKTs were. Um, we just went out to circumnavigate Crater Lake while hitting the seven high points around the rim. Um, yeah. And we went out for that and it was just the super cool experience. And then shortly after I discovered what FKTs were and I'm like, that is a classic route. And so I submitted it and they of course accepted it and said, this is really good. Um, since then it's been repeated a bunch of times. I think it's changed hands five or six times now, the record on it just since yeah. 20, 2018. Um, so that kind of started the momentum going this direction. And I, I, like I mentioned, the car accident got me into, uh, both mountaineering and rock climbing. And so I started to look for these like blended effort type FKTs where, you know, you, you could never go do a race that involves hard scrambling or, or yeah. even, you know, rock climbing in it. There's no way they could let people do that. But yeah. for an FKT, if you've got the mind um, and you've got the skills for rock climbing without a rope or simul climbing with a partner fast, then you can go out and you can blend these awesome trails and these awesome rock routes into, you know, big car to car effort days, or even sometimes just like all out sprint car to car effort days. And that became my passion for a while, just like finding these new, like super classic routes that didn't have a car to car record. Um, and going out and projecting the route and getting out and seeing why they're so classic. And then after getting comfortable with the route, going for it fast and uh, off a rope. And I mean, there's a, there's a calmness and a clarity. I think, I think a lot of us ultra runners, we fall in love with how empty our headspace can get when we're out on those long training runs, or even when we're boiled down raw in a race. And it's just, us yeah. and and our uh, just the two voices in our head will will I quit or will I keep going <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah we we love that but 
I almost, I don't almost think, I know <laughs> the degree of silence and clarity and focus when you've blended the two, when you've run up and then you're making moves out on a route where every mood, move absolutely matters. Yeah. It's just complete silence. Um, and for someone with a loud mind like mine, a distractible mind where there's a thousand things going on at once, that feels amazing. Um, and so I kind of fell in love with that feeling as well of just being out and being just 100% focused, 100% dialed. Um, so have you, have you had a moment on these, Jason, on these many FKTs where, like you said, there, you're in a position sometimes where you cannot make a wrong move or you're gone. So have you been in positions before where you're like, holy shit, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this, like that close to death, but you've managed to find your way out. <laughs> have you had any calls like that? Um, during the FKT stuff, I don't, I don't, I mean, there's been a couple of times. I mean, there's always times where, well, not always, but there's frequently times where you'll, you'll like lose your headspace a little bit. And then you'll just kind of have to pull it back in and dial it back in and look, calm down, look for the next move, find the right sequence. Um, and, and, you know, move past whatever you're hung up on. Um, but actually the time that was the biggest wake up call was early when I'd gotten into mountaineering, I'd climbed a few different mountains and I'd, uh, just done a, a back to back, back to back days on climbing Mount Hood, the tallest uh, mountain in Oregon here. And yeah. you know, it's, it's a reasonably technical mountain, not crazy hard, but definitely one you have to be prepared for. And so I came in prepared and I knew my stuff and I climbed it. But then on day two, the buddy who dropped me off worked at a different ski resort that was like partway around the mountain that I had to go get down to get a ride from him. And so I knew I needed to like circumnavigate a portion of the mountain and kind of being fatigued. And I still wasn't back in great shape because it was still pretty recently after the car accident. And so I was kind of coming down fatigued after these back-to-back -back days. And I made this decision to traverse this like ice field and the crampons I had at the time were not up to the task. Um, but I made this bad decision and my gut had kind of told me like, ah, you probably don't have the right equipment for that. Um, <laughs> but I was just like, oh, I can do this. And sure enough, my feet popped out from under me and I started sliding down and, you know, luckily, you know, the skills kicked in, the instincts kicked in for the practice skills and I rolled and put the ice axe in and everything just right. Um, yeah. and I can actually still distinctly remember like the ringing sound that the ice axe made as it cut, Ooh. as the pick cut through the snow and ice as I yeah. like sunk it in. Cause it's right next to your ear as you like sink it in. Yeah. Um, and I can just remember that like humming ringing sound and like looking up and seeing the cut of it just like 25, 30 feet through the snow and ice. Um, wow. And like just below me, maybe another 10, 15 feet was a small cliff. And then like, if I'd gone off that, I would have lost control so bad that I probably would have continued, you know, bumping and rolling all the way to the bottom of the goalie. Um, yeah. And it would have been, it would probably, it almost definitely would have been a case where I would have needed helicoptered off the mountain. And yeah. that was one of those reality checks, wake up calls like, Hey, you can't, you can't make bad decisions like that with, 
gear that's inadequate when you're in fatigue states. Um, and that really reset my expectations for myself for decision-making early on in my uh, mountaineering experience. It's like, yeah, okay, you can have your skills dialed, but you, even if you're dialed, there's only, your reaction time is only so fast. And yeah. that one cut it way too close. I'd say another second and a half, maybe two seconds tops, and I would have slid right off. Um, so just that little bit slower and wouldn't have been fast enough. So that was probably the biggest, like, real um yeah reality check as far as like that could have been a very bad situation um mm. and i think i've brought that experience to bear on how i operate in my decision making um now with fkts yeah i, <laughs> I can imagine that was um something you'll never forget <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, a, and a hard learned lesson so i think that's that's great advice. Um, so, you know, we probably could take literally hours and I, uh, hopefully you and I can meet in person sometime over a beer or something. And, and I want to hear all these stories, but just for the sake of time, like, can you kind of list through some of these FKTs? And for those that um, have not heard other episodes, FKT stands for fastest known time. Um, it's generally a route that's tracked by personal data and GPS data and then verified. So, Jason, tell us, I know you recently, you, well, you've done the, the seven summits circumnavigating, circumnavigate, that's a tough one to say, circumnavigating Crater Lake. I know you recently were in Death Valley, but kind of just go through all these different FKTs that you've done for us. Um, sure. I'll, I'll blow through a handful of them. Um, I ran from sea to summit of Mauna Kea in, on the big island, Hawaii. Um, and that's a 40 mile route. You start at sea level, you end at just under 14,000 feet. So it's one of wow. the biggest days of gain you can do. Um, wow. That was a super cool experience running up through those different ecosystems. Um, yeah, that was a, a lot of suffering too. Um, one of my favorite run plus rock routes is Cosmic Wall on Mount Hubris in the Castle Craig State Park in California. Um, that one's a short like sprint. Um, up this steep trail for about three miles, then you solo about 800 feet of five, six. Um, mm. And Mount Shasta is basically right off your right shoulder as okay. you're making this whole climb. So you have this beautiful mountain, this beautiful view, you're super exposed. And there's this super memorable airy move that you make about halfway up. Um, so that one was amazing. Um, I've done Tanaya Peak in, um, the Tuolumne Meadows in uh, Yosemite. Uh, I did a double traverse of Joshua Tree National Park. Um, wow. more, more recently, uh, I did a Mount Hood Summit Circumnavigate. I did a Mount Adams Summit Circumnavigate. I did what they call the Cascades Trifecta, where you climb Mount Rainier, Mount Adams, and Mount Hood all in the same day. Oh my God. <laughs> um, the biggest oh, wow. one that I've done uh, well, the two biggest ones that I've done that kind of probably made people take, I mean, that one probably was the first one that people took notice of. Um, and then the Rainier Infinity Loop, which is basically, if you imagine drawing an infinity loop right over the top of uh, Mount Rainier. So you go up and over, circumnavigate half, up and over again, circumnavigate the other half. It's 137 miles, 44,000 feet of elevation gain. Oh my um, God. <laughs> so that one is insane. Then I did Oregon's five highest, which is 
the Three Sisters Mountains next to Bend. You get on the PCT. You uh, run to Mount Jefferson, the second tallest in Oregon. Uh, also a pretty technical peak with some rock climbing at the summit. You climb up and over that. And then you get back on the PCT, run all the way to Hood, and then summit Hood and come back down. And when you get back down to the Timberline Lodge, you, you stop the time. Um, so that one's 145 miles, if I remember right. Um, and some crazy number of elevation gain. Um, so those are, those are kind of my big ones. Um, then I've done some other fun stuff like the Yosemite Valley Loop is a 20 mile loop just around the bottom of the valley. Um, you know, it's small, but it's like the most world-class views you can have on a 20 mile run probably anywhere. <laughs> Because the whole time your jaw is just dragging on the ground as you like run under L cap and run right under the bottom of uh, Half Dome, mm. um, right next to Yosemite Falls. Yeah, it's a pretty phenomenal experience. Um, and then, I mean, there's a silly one on there recently uh, called the Mary Hill Stonehenge. There's this replica of Stonehenge in Washington in the Columbia Gorge um down there on the border with Oregon. And it's basically 120 meters around it, and you basically do as many laps as you can in an hour. Um, so it's this ridiculous record, but I don't know. There's part of me. I, I a year or two ago, I ran uh, a marathon around a single city block uh, over a bet with a friend. Um, he, oh had to go, he had to go out and get 10,000 feet of elevation gain going up to the local um, letter. Uh, you know how cities have the letter on the hillside. Yeah. Yeah. So he basically had to do, lapse repetitively up to that letter until he got 10,000 feet of gain and I had to do a marathon around a single city block. Um, <laughs> so I, I've always been a sucker for the ridiculous. Um, so I don't take myself too seriously. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. What, what was that like to run a marathon around a single city block? I mean, where did you do it? First of all, like, how did you decide the location? <laughs> I just went with convenience. I, uh, I literally went with, uh, the block around this, the co-working space that I rent. Cause basically I, I live in a van and I live right, right near it. And so it was kind of convenient. It, you know, I'm there. That's where I am right now recording this. Um, it's called the Gaucho Collective here in Klamath Falls. Um, if anybody ever needs a place to work, stop on by. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I just did it right around the block kind of in this downtown corridor here. And, uh, it was, it was actually like, you would think it would be the most mentally draining thing you could ever do, but I was able to pretty quick get in sort of a, a state of Zen, if you will, because you can sort of release any expectation because yeah. um, you're like looping the same loop. But then what ended up being unique about it is because I was in this downtown area where like it was kind of reaching the end of the workday and kind of from the, it was, it was sort of the time from when work started getting out to when people at one of the little gyms down here were like coming in to get their workout. So I got to have all these different little interactions and like see these different things happening as a part of people's life in these like minute and 30 second clips, yeah. you know, cause basically I'd yeah. get, I'd get each side of the block um, and something would be happening on each side of the block that was like, Oh, that person's made it to there or this person's doing this. Um, and there were a few people who were like standing outside the, the gym that, you know, the first few times I go around, they kind of have that, whatever, what is this guy doing kind of look, but by like the 40th time I go by, they just couldn't help but like start this like slow clap, like, 
Holy <laughs> cow, dude. You're insane. Yeah. Like, I can't help but appreciate what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing, but yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, okay, how many laps did it end up being for the full marathon? Um, it was, uh, what was it? It was pretty well, pretty well over 100. I remember that I made 400 uh, turns, you know, 90 degree <laughs> turns. Um, did you over rever- did you reverse at all? Did you reverse strike? I did. I did reverse for a little while, but for some reason, it didn't feel as good to run it that way. I think it's because of the placement of the fire hydrants. It made the uh-huh. it made it so you had to cut the corners harder instead of be able be, being able to kind of loosen it out a little bit by swinging wide. Okay. Um, so I I pretty quick switched back the other way and just kept going the same way because it felt smoother. Wow, that's amazing. You know what, like there's there's a very odd part of me that kind of wants to do that just because like people don't do that and you're kind of like it has got to be like one of the most mentally taxing things and i don't know i think i think that'd just be interesting to see if you could do it <laughs> i don't know You've been yeah i mean Jason. <laughs> absolutely it's it's i think it's worth i think everybody should try a 24-hour run because it's you know obviously that's a lap course as well um yeah. but but sort of like I mean, I've gotten quite a few different people who are like these dudes who would never run. But when you present the premise of, well, how far can you move your body in 24 hours? Like whether it's yeah. walking or crawling or whatever, yeah. suddenly it's like, you know what? I want to try that. I want, I yeah. want the answer to that question. Um, right. And I think the marathon around a single city block sort of presents one of those experiential things. Like what will I have to do? What will I experience inside my mind? in that time, even if I'm absolutely sure I can run a marathon, what, how different will this experience be? Cause it's just going to be about what's going on inside me. Not about like, Oh wow, what a beautiful marathon course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be about a Boston qualifier or anything. Cause yeah, it's just, it's just you and yourself for, you know, three, four five hours, however long it takes you to run a marathon. Yeah. It is, it is an experience that, it allows you to go inside um, and sort of find out how that experience plays out. Um, and for me, I value that. You know, whenever, whenever people like talk about sort of the, the suffering parts of workouts or the suffering parts of races, in my mind, and this kind of gets to one of my training tips, it kind of touches on it. It's like, no, you've earned a chance to be in this mental space. Like mm. however many hours it's taken you to get to this mental and physical state, don't just wish it was over. Mm. Like this is, this is a chance to learn something about yourself while in that state that you can't experience any other time. And I think one of the reasons that resonates with me so much is back when I was really young, um, a mentor that I had when I was young uh, told me this quote that he said, Uh, and I don't know where it originates from, but human beings are like a tube of toothpaste. You find out what's inside when they get squeezed. And I think, I I think my, my approach to this kind of ties back to that quote that it's like, you now have a chance to find out what's on the inside Mm -hmm. when you've gone to that place, when you've, you know, ridden, ridden the, uh, the pain wagon into the suffer the the or the suffer wagon into the pain cave. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. So that 
that's fantastic. And I think that's a great segue into some of these training tips that you have for us. So, I mean, how would you summarize that one that you just kind of explained? That was, that was beautiful. Um, I would sum that up. I mean, I guess that kind of covers sort of the first and the second one. One of the th phrases, you know, we love mantras. There's, there is power in mantras, I think. Um, and one of them that I use both to motivate myself to get out the door and in a workout is discomfort is the path. You know, so often human beings want to try to regulate their internal experience by avoiding. So if mm -hmm. something creates a, a, a difficult internal experience, you know, uh, referencing emotions or, you know, mental states or whatever that you struggle with, fears, insecurities. So often we want to regulate that so that we don't have to go through anything uncomfortable by also regulating our external experience. And I think that's a useful strategy, but I think the flip of that's really important that the only way you learn and grow and progress past that and be able to be powerful in the face of that is if you go right into it and you don't have to, you know, if you're scared of, you know, I, I listened to a book recently where, you know, the author was like, Oh, I was scared of flying. And the only thing I could find that, pro that provoked a similar feeling of claustrophobia and stuck and fear was going to cycling classes like uh, in, in indoor cycling classes spin classes mm -hmm. yeah. um for some reason that provoked the same thing so she started going to spin classes because she wanted to start flying and going places mm. um and so i think letting yourself know that it's okay to experience fears and insecurities and in these things on the inside or in our case as ultra runners discomfort um or if you you know prefer the term suffering. Um, it's okay to experience those and that those are those experiences are going to lead to you having a better control over your overall experience in life. If you can manage that internal space, then you can better engage with the external space. Um, and so discomfort is the path as a part of it. And um, another fun one that I sort of realized I adopted over time is this mental sort of trick of telling myself whether it's a race or an event or an FKT, um, it, it doesn't really start until it gets hard. Mm. It's like, I'm just a kid on the playground. I'm just goofing off. I'm just, uh, it's just playtime. I'm not even engaged. It's just fun until it starts becoming a struggle. And then at that point is when I start to get really focused and I start to like bear down and like bring all those other internal skill sets to bear on the situation until then I try to stay pretty lighthearted and playful and like enjoying the views and all those sorts of things. Um, but even then smiling into that struggle, like, okay, here we go with a big old grin on your face. Now we're started. Um, I think back to like, photos of myself during cycling races during my uh, triathlon days and cycling days. And there's some photos um, at one race in particular where every other dude in the Peloton is just grimacing and like just, you know, <laughs> wrenching on their bike. And then you yeah. see me like rounding off, trying to pull off to the front. And I've just got this big shit ass grin on my face. Because <laughs> it's like, like that moment kicked in where like I was suffering. Like I like you'd look at the photo and someone who does like doesn't have much experience is like, oh, that guy's not even trying. 
He's just more yeah. talented than them. It's like, no, I was in deep suffering, but sort of the thought in my mind is, okay, now it's started. Now we get to have fun. Okay, now let's put the hurt on. Like this, you think this hurts. Let's all hurt some more. <laughs> um, <laughs> Would you consider yourself a masochist, Jason? I think, I think there's a little bit of that, but only playfully, not, not, not too seriously. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's what any masochist would say. I don't know. Maybe um, that could be your new Instagram handle, the playful masochist. Like, <laughs> <catchy>. <laughs> I kind of like, like that, the playful masochist. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to you know, run that one through some polling. <laughs> I love it. No, that's yep. great, man. These are fantastic so far. So I've, I've been taking notes. So we've got, um, we've got, I love what you just said there. You said, um, it doesn't really start until it gets hard. Discomfort is the path. Smile into the struggle. What other bits of advice would you have for us? Um, another really important one I learned during my early ultra running experience, because um, basically I had this experience where I did this early season 100K, but it was my first ever 100K. But like mentally, I wanted to treat it like I'd already had the experience. I wanted to pay, behave as if, and I think that's an important premise to allow yourself permission to act as if. I think that's a important like psychological trick. Because mm -hmm. um, so often we tell ourselves, oh, I've never done that or I'm not this. Well, what would you do if you were? Behave as if you already are. And so I was employing that trick and I was like, well, I'm just going to train through this race and treat it like a B race because my really important stuff is later on in the season and this will be a great fitness boost. So I didn't really taper much for it. But then I made the mistake of seeing some of my buddies who showed up to the race who are kind of hard hitters and yeah. just going out with them. And so sure enough, I find myself in this brutal opening climb um, at like mile seven and we're just like crushing at way faster than really I would normally even race like a 50 K. Um, and I'm already on tired legs and I'm like, looking at my heart rate and it's peaking like 170s and 180s. And I'm like, maybe this will work out. <laughs> it didn't work out. Um, and like I pop at like 11 miles in and I mean, I pop bad, like cramping and vision narrowing at the top of the climb, the second climb. Um, and like, I lay down on the ground and I'm like, Oh, this is over. Like I messed this up. Um, and like, I'm just laying there. And of course people are coming by and being friendly. Like, Oh, do you need anything? Are you okay? Cause it's yeah. like, we're, we're literally 11 miles into a hundred K. Like, how are you down already? Oh, um, no. <laughs> and <laughs> so I lay there for a while and kind of let my body catch up with itself. Um, you know, take some salt tabs, eat some food. And then for some reason, the like overwhelming thought that comes to me is it's like, you know what? There are people who show up to these events who never have the chance to run in the front. Like literally every single time they come to one of these, they pay their money, they show up. And what they do is they chase cutoff times. Right. And that is their mission. And I sort of felt this like, because I'd been bothered by like high level athletes that, you know, run a race and then they just get a little off pace. And so they drop out like that always bugged me a little bit. Like I understand it better now, but at the time right. that completely bugged me. Yeah. Um, Cause I was sort of like a hard work, always finish what you start like mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
because I've never been the talented athlete on the team. I've always been the athlete that like trains all season just to be there with the people who like, Oh yeah, I started running a few weeks ago and they're already faster than me. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So work ethic has always been really important to me. And so like that always bugged me and the thought like came to me in that moment. It's like, you know what? The only way I'm exiting this course is if they tell me I've missed a cutoff or it's out the finish line. Like those are the options. I don't care what it feels like. That's irrelevant. Like it's either out the finish line or it's, I'm sorry, you missed a cutoff. We have to remove you from the course. Like those are the two options. Yeah. And like with, and it never started feeling any better, but literally 49 miles of Sufferfest marching and occasionally limping because of cramps and just like being sure that my body was going to shut down. Like there's no way, there's no way, there's no way I can keep going. Like just being absolutely sure inside my own mind that this was not going to work. Um, but just looking down at my legs and going, it's not over if you're still moving. And that's, that's sort of my next tip is like, if you can look down and the muscles are still firing and those, that muscle firing is still moving you forward, it's not over. Mm. Um, and sure enough, like the point at which I thought my day was over and the point at which my day ended and maybe who knows, maybe I could have gone further. Um, but there was 49 miles of difference there. Yeah. And that was like my first like dose of understanding of like just how different where our mental barriers are and where the actual physical barriers are. Right. Um, and I think like, especially for the efforts, like the Rainier infinity loop, uh, the Oregon's five highest, like there were basically the suffering kicked on, on the Rainier infinity loop. Um, after I'd made the second trip over the summit, like I kind of knew I was pretty in a pretty bad state as I like topped and came down the other side, I was still moving pretty reasonable, but I could kind of feel it coming. And then sure enough, as I started the final, uh, 67 miles to circumnavigate back around to the finish start and finish point. Um, there was like, there's not very much buttery, smooth, super fast, uh, trail running, on the wonderland like it's a pretty difficult trail in spots but i was on like this perfect buttery mild downhill like where you'd normally just be able to open it up and fly Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay here we go let's cover some ground and like i push into it and like it's hurting and like you know kind of this this the edges of suffering and i look down at my watch and i'm doing 14 minute miles and i'm like oh man this is going to be a long night Cause right then it's like, I knew it's like, if I want to stay ahead of the record, basically the only way, if this is as fast as I can go, if I only get slower from here, then I don't get to sleep tonight. Like that's the only way I can be sure that I stay ahead of the record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so like just being able to go, okay, as long as you're moving forward, it's not over. Yeah. Um, and just bearing into that through an entire night. And I think that experience in that hundred K was hugely important to being able to know I could call upon my body to do it again in that record. Um, let me let me let me pause and ask your advice on this because I think this is something that that all the endurance athletes may run into at one point or another. You know, in that moment you were going for this record, you had you know a hopeful expectation of where you wanted to be during that time, and then 
you know, I think, I think you're right. I think there's, there's two types of people. There's the types that are like, no matter what I'm, I'm going, or I'm going to die and I'm going to finish this thing. Or there's the types that the expectation can be so shattered when they're not where they think they are in the race, they just drop out. So for people that are in those moments, like you were, how do you mentally kind of restructure what's really happening to where you can stay positive and you can keep moving forward? Um, I mean, there's a thousand little tricks. Um, I mean, there's that, that other old mantra, run the mile that you're in. Um, I think that's hugely important because if you, if you ever dwell on how much you have left, I don't care if you're running 16, 400 meter repeats on the track. If you think about all 16, it is going to suck to run those splits. Like it's going to be way easier to fall off your pace. But if you're like, you know what? I can run one 400 at this pace. And then you roll back around after doing that one and taking some rest. You're like, you know, I could run 400 meters on this pace. And you just do that until the 16 are done. It won't feel that hard. Um, And I think the same is true in these big efforts, making sure you um, segment and compartmentalize the portions of it, breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. Um, I would say, and this is actually my number four um, tip, I would say a unique thing that I learned in my training, and also I have some friends that study psychology and behaviorism. Uh, one of them's name is John Bailey. He's a, he, he lives here in Southern Oregon. Um, one of the things he's really big on is want to versus have to. And, and this, you can hear this in people's language. Like you can, you can literally hear them tell you which state of mind they're in as, as they get talking about something. If they tell you, oh man, yeah, I have to go to work. And then I have to get my workout in because I'm training for this marathon. If you're in, if you're in that have to mental state, if you've let yourself slide into that, you, you, when you end up frustrated because something difficult comes your way, whether it's a curveball or outside stress, or just like you're not seeing your, the progress you should be. Um, if you're in that have to mindset, then when frustration comes, your only available exits psychologically are either to get angry or to, to give up. Like those are the only options when you're in that state. Right. If you flip that, the opposite side of have to is want to. And you can hear people when they're waxing eloquent and they're talking super excited about the things they want to do, the things they have passion, they have passion for, the things they dream of. When they're in that mental state, then the options you have when you run into that same frustration, whether that frustration is your legs shutting down and you feel like you're falling off pace or you're not seeing progress with your training block or whatever it is, um, if you are in a want to mindset and you face that frustration, the exits available to you because of being in that state are if you see progress, you're going to persevere. And if you don't see progress, you're going to get curious. Mm. And I mean, you can see this, like think, if you think about hanging out in a gym, if there's a gym bro in there, who's trying to get super ripped um, and seeing progress, whether his routine is very good or not, he just keeps hitting it. You see him there every day, drinking his creatine, pushing his bench press. Yeah. But when he's plateaued and I've, I've been a personal trainer in the past as well. Um, so when, when, uh, when this, when the same fellow plateaus and he's not seeing the progress, all of a sudden he's 
all up in your grill. He's like, oh, what sort of supplements do you use? What is your routine that you do for this? How do you get calves like that? Like he gets curious. Like you can see it in all these, these different situations. I mean, even like starting your car in the morning. If, yeah. you, if you go to start it and it doesn't start immediately, it just, but it's turning, you'll keep trying it as long as you're not in a rush. If you're in a rush, the have to mindset kicks in and you get really pissed. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're just wanting to go somewhere, if you hear that progress of the engine turning, you'll keep trying it. And sometimes yes. you'll keep trying it up until the point the battery fails. But if you turn it and it does nothing or it clicks, if you know anything about engines, you immediately walk out and pop the hood and get curious. If you don't know anything about engines, you get curious by calling your mechanic friend and going, hey, what's going on with my car? Um, both of those are curiosity responses. So yeah. I think as an athlete, it's so easy when you've picked a big goal and you've sort of solidified this, a dream into a goal and you have a plan for it. It's super easy to slide from that. Oh my God, this is a dream. This is something I want. This means so much to me to, I have to follow this plan. I have to do this workout. I have to accomplish this thing. Right. And you're setting yourself up for burnout. When people talk about burnout, one of the first things I start thinking is, okay, I want to listen to how they talk about what they're doing. And almost always, I'll hear them use phrases of have to. Um, and that kills your motivation. So I think even in, in the midst of a, an effort, if you can remind yourself of that want, of that, how that was a dream, and you're literally carrying out the steps of your dream, then it's going to be a lot easier to find that motivation again, to keep persevering, to keep pushing forward, to keep taking that next step, because you know, this is something you want. Um, mm, I love that. I love so that, that. I think that's huge. I think that's huge. Um, then uh, actually the, the other one, the other trick I use my number five of, of this conversation is um connecting or reconnecting with both your why and that's kind of been well i kind of well laid that out with the last one just kind of you know was it a dream or whatever like you're are you carrying out just reconnecting with whatever it is that originally put you in a place where you wanted to do this thing whatever the thing is yeah um but then the other side of that is as a as a pe teacher i was lucky enough that the curriculum I got taught under was by Pan Grazy. And one of the thing his, one of the things his research looked into is sort of like an instinctual approach to human beings in that we all have these drives and urges. Um, his, his textbook uses the word urges, his curriculum uses the word urges. And mm -hmm. it, if as a teacher, you think that the kids are coming in with nothing and you have to like do everything, then you're going to fail because you're you're going to get unexpected results. If instead you are aware of the natural urges that kids have, urges to explore, urges to experiment, urges to play, um, urges for competition. Like if you have an understanding of these like different urges that human beings have, then it's way easier to be a teacher because you can then instead you realize I'm not trying to make them do something. I'm just redirecting energy for something they already want to do to a specific target mm, and that's brilliant. we can do that inside ourselves as well 
in that we can reconnect with, you know, maybe you're, you're suffering out on a long run, um, or maybe you're, maybe you're having trouble getting motivated to even go for your long runs. Um, yeah. well, re re-engage with the urge to explore, like what's a trail you've always wanted to go visit, make your next weekend run into a big affair. Like I'm, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive out to this place. I've always wanted to explore. Like, I don't care if it costs money. This is worth it. It's one of my dreams. Like I'm training yeah. for something I care about. Like it's worth it to, to do the things that are going to make it work. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to explore this place. I've always wanted to go. Like maybe it's not the perfect training run. Like maybe it has too much vert or maybe it's, yeah, maybe a coach would say, Oh, that's not ideal for what you're training for. Who cares if you were not doing anything because you lacked motivation and now you're going to go do a thing that's better. That's a step of improvement by a long shot. Absolutely. Um, and you're going to, you're going to reignite that passion and those urges of like, Oh, I love exploring. I love going out and finding what's around the next corner and getting to the top of a summit I've never been on. Right. Um, so like exploration or reminding yourself to be playful, like the smiling thing. This is a part of that as well. Like the reason I originally reminded myself to smile in those suffering moments is if you can smile and be playful about it and remember like I'm out here playing like, yes, it hurts, but that's not all that's going on. Like we're a bunch of kids racing bikes or we're a bunch of kids having a foot race. You know, we're, we're climbing on the jungle gym of nature, whatever the activity you're doing is. If you remind yourself how silly and playful it is, then oftentimes you can get out of that like suffering mental state a little bit, get out of your own head and, and sort of like find that natural energy to just be like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. I can keep, I can keep going with this. Um, so I think sort of connecting back to those sort of instinctual elements. Um, you know, and that can be as simple as like, again, you know, finding a training partner to be social with who's stoked on the similar stuff as you. Like there's a huge, the reason there's people talk about that so much and why that works is we're social animals. We have urges to connect with people. Um, so that's one example, but there's so many of these. And I think sometimes we, we get into this mindset of like, oh, I just need to be able to be this standalone grind for what I want. Um, yeah, I don't know. That sounds a little too serious for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic advice. I, I think, yeah, a hundred percent. If it, if it can be the thing that gets you out there to reignite that passion and, and joy, cause you know, let's be honest, like what percentage of, of ultra endurance athletes are really getting paid? Very, very few. So it's like, if we're doing all this, like it better be fun. It better be enriching and it better be adding value to our lives so that we can add add value to the world in our own way so i love that man so all right jason this has been amazing like i'm i'm literally so excited to to go back before we post this and just re-listen to everything there's like so much wisdom in this man so i appreciate this so much um what does it mean to you to prevail in the finite sense um so like if you're in the moment with whatever whatever like you know, effort you're in. Um, to me, it's that act of finding the way, whatever, like using any of the methods that I've laid out um, or, or any other ones that other people talk about. It's that act of overcoming in the face of extreme adversity, it, that persevering, that act of courage 
to not give up when you don't think you have a fighting chance. That to me is prevailing. But in the infinite sense, um, it's contributing to like the bigger picture. It's like contributing to the advancing of a cause. Like us having this conversation right now, there are people who are gonna be inspired and get out and do more because of that. And then they're gonna inspire people to get out and do more and on and on and on. This infinite ongoing game of being healthy human beings. Um, and I think in an infinite sense, what it is to prevail is to, in your own way, contribute to that advancing of humanity. Um, so those would be my two answers for that. Man, those, those are, those are incredible, Jason. Like I, you're, you're a brilliant thinker, man. Like, <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's fantastic. And I can tell you've, you know, really thought about life in general when you're out in these places for hours. And I love how you said it allows your mind to be quiet so that you can think. So, um, man, I just appreciate you being on, on the show so much, Jason. And this is, this has been a blast. I hope we can meet in person sometime soon and share more stories and everything else. What is the best place for people to find you and say hello on either social media or the World Wide Web? Um, the most consistent way probably to get a hold of me is Instagram. My Instagram is Jason Hardrath at Jason Hardrath. Um, super easy to find that way. You can shoot me a direct message on there. Um, I'm pretty friendly. I respond. I like questions. Um, I like meeting people. Um, uh, if anybody does the, the Facebook anymore, I'm on there as well. Um, <laughs> um, and then uh, I do have a website. There's not much on it yet. I'm, like I said, with paperwork type things, I'm super bad. Um, I'd rather just go climb another mountain. And so there's not been much progress, but jasonhardrath.com is my website. And I'm trying to, trying to get that updated with some of my adventures and some of the different like podcasts I've spoken on. Um, but it hasn't happened too much yet. <laughs> oh, no worries, man. Well, we'll have links on the show notes to all of that. So people can just immediately click and, and follow you. I think Instagram is definitely the go-to these days, like you say. So that sounds awesome, man. Well, Jason, super, super pumped um, to have you on again. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you guys on the next episode. Peace. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Jason and taking notes. One of my favorite things that he says is smile into the struggle. I absolutely love that. I'm going to take that away with me on every new adventure that I do and every life struggle that I encounter. So I hope you guys got a lot out of that. If you have, please continue to share the podcast. It means the world to us. We don't charge for the podcast. We don't have advertisers. We don't have sponsors or anything like that. It's just to give good content and help you guys have a better life and more motivation to do everything that you want to do. So thank you guys so much, and we'll see you on the next episode.